two, one, there we go, there we go. You guys have a good day today? Why don't you ask your neighbor, hey, what was your favorite, your highlight of the day? Just real quick, 10 seconds. Highlight of the day, five, four, three, two. One of my highlights today, if I could share, if I'm allowed to share, one of my highlights today was, I guess I heard about this and I was just laughing about it, is I think it was Billy. Billy, you were, you got out of the, the ocean and then you're in, you're doing the shower thing and someone was, was putting soap in your hair and you kept, you kept washing and then the more soap would just be accumulating just over and over and over and over and I was like, wow, that man must have leprosy or something. He's trying to cleanse himself and clean him off. Just, and, and I was like, wow, what a picture of God's grace. Just, this is always just cleansing, the cleansing mercy of God and shampoo, and you know, it's just such a great illustration, so that was just hilarious. Were your eyes burning? Were you like, yes? yes. <laughs> good thing God's grace doesn't burn our eyes, so that's good. Oh man, so fun. Camp is so fun. I love camp. I kind of shared earlier that, in, I think in passing, that I got saved at a summer camp, and it was on... The last night, actually, I remember I was sitting, it was after the sermon, I don't know who preached, I couldn't tell you what the series was on, what the sermons were on, but I remember sitting there watching, at the time I, I thought I was a believer, I had confessed Christ, I, I would share the gospel, I even probably at that camp was praying for some lost friends that I knew that weren't saved, Yet all the while, I was praying for them to encounter Christ when I hadn't myself. And it was in a moment of seeing some of my, those friends that I knew weren't saved get saved. And they were worshiping the Lord with so much joy. And I was like, I don't have that joy. And the Holy Spirit, it's a miracle of the Lord, convicted my heart, bringing to mind that I don't think I'm a Christian. And uh, my leader, faithfully, I went to him and I said, I don't think I'm saved. And uh, just a deep despair and darkness. And, and the leader said, hey, there's nothing I could tell you. You know the gospel, which I did. I heard it a thousand times. And so he said, I want you to go off into the camp, just out of the wilderness. And I just want you to pray. That was some of the best counsel that he could have gave me. Because it's just that time alone with the Lord. And, I just want to encourage you that in this last night, don't waste camp. Don't waste this time. We've been learning a lot about Christ and so much of his grace and forgiveness. Do not waste this time. Take it seriously. Get away maybe tonight just in prayer and thanksgiving or, or even just asking the Lord to expose your sin and, and, and to call out to him, to cry out to him. And so before we even get into the text this morning, or this evening, I should say, let me uh, pray for our time. Father God, thank you so much for these students. They're so precious, Lord, to you. You created them. Each and every one of them have worth, value, and dignity by virtue of being made in your image. God, you created them to glorify you and enjoy you. And we know that sin plagues our hearts, plagues our world. 
pulls us away from you. And I just, I pray for each and every one of these students that they would come to know Jesus as their Savior, as their good and gracious King, as their prophet, as their priest and as their King, as their mediator between God and man, as their older brother, the firstborn of all creation, and as their kind and gentle Savior, God. And so even as we go to your word again to look at how you treat sinners, how you're a friend of sinners, may you just melt our hearts, Lord. Just just open up our hearts to receive you, God. Even mine as I'm preaching, God. Our hearts can become so cold. So warm them with the gospel tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you a scenario. Let's just say one of your friends in your small group, someone that you went to camp with, or someone at your church comes up to you on a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night, and they, they say to you, I know that I'm a Christian. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I trust in Him, but I just lack motivation. I just lack motivation in my life to live for him. It's so hard for me to obey my parents. I I wrestle, I fight against it, and I have no desire, at least it seems I have no desire, to obey. It seems like God's commands are burdensome. When I know that they're not, I want to honor the Lord, but I just lack motivation. How can I change that? And what would you say? How would you lead them? How would you counsel them? What passage would you turn to? Well, I'll give you one. Turn to Luke chapter 7. Turn to Luke chapter 7. We've been looking at the free grace of Jesus Christ. In Mark 1, the leper is shown mercy and Jesus heals him. Jesus takes his place. Remember, Jesus is exiled into the wilderness where the leper used to live. And now the leper gets to go into the town and it's a picture of Jesus' substitution, his exchange, great exchange for us on the cross. Luke chapter 7, if you're wondering, that's where we're going. So that was the first sermon. And then we saw, this morning, we saw that Jesus' free grace to the invalid, the, the paralyzed man, the man that had been there 38 years, who had been, look, been looking everywhere but Christ for healing. And Jesus just walks up to him And says, do you want to be healed? In light of this free grace, in light of this mercy, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how is it that we should respond? Because in Mark chapter 1, Jesus gives the leper a command, right? But the leper doesn't regard Jesus' command. And then in John chapter 5, we actually didn't read this part. Jesus goes back and he finds the man that he healed. And he says, see to it, sin no more, lest nothing worse may happen to you. So in light of this grace, now obey. Now live for me. And that's the proper response to the grace of God in the gospel. The proper response is to devote our lives to him. Because he is devoted. He devoted his life for us. We love because he first loved 
us. And in Luke chapter 7, we're going to see a brilliant illustration of this that answers the question. I lack motivation to serve Christ, to obey Christ, to live for Him. I lack assurance. What can I, how can I change that? Luke chapter 7. And let's start in verse 30, um, actually verse 28. And so some, some context here. If you just look at chapter 7, Jesus had healed the centurion's servant. And this centurion had faith that Jesus had not seen in all of Israel. And this was a Roman Gentile. All right, a picture leaning up to that Jesus is going to usher in the new covenant, right? Which then is Jew and Gentile together. And then Jesus raises the widow's son from the dead in verses 11 through 17. And look at verse 16 in chapter 7. It says that fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has risen among us and God has visited the people. And then there's this little discussion about John the Baptist and people are, are asking the Lord, are you the one who is promised to come? And Jesus reminds us that, saying that John the Baptist was fulfilling Malachi 3.1, that he was the messenger that was meant to be the forerunner and prepare the way for the Messiah. And so there's this whole discussion here and let's pick up in verse 31, some context. To what shall, Jesus Jesus talking, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. And we sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. And the son of man, this is key. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's what Jesus is known for. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And then we get to our passage this morning. Jesus, the friend of sinners. How is he a friend of sinners? And look at verses 36 through 38. This is our passage. And after this, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. Now, at this point, the Pharisees were not like trying to kill him in, in, this, in the narrative. So this Pharisee, his name is Simon, was probably asking, he's probably skeptical, but he's probably asking Jesus to come and eat with him so that he could question him. Maybe see if he could catch him in some theological conundrums, get him to blasphemy or blaspheme uh, God or, or in some way. He's, he probably wants to test him. And so he asked him to eat with him, and Jesus gladly goes. He doesn't just eat with sinners and tax collectors. He also goes and eats with this Pharisee. He goes to this Pharisee's house, and he's reclining at table. So the way where they would eat sometimes is in the courtyard of this, this person's dwelling place, and they would lay down. So picture Jesus. He's laying down. You know, they'd be on the right side, I think, and then, um, on the left side, and then they would use their right hand. So they're like laying down. Everyone's facing the middle and they're eating food. Okay? Does it make sense? I don't want to actually get down. I don't want to get dirty here, but that's what Jesus is doing. He's laying down. He's reclining. You get the picture. So he's reclining at the table. And look at verse 37. And behold, Luke wants to get your attention. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, an uninvited guest, Shows up 
When she learned that he was reclining, that is Jesus, at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So what do we see here in the text? The first thing that I want to draw out is extravagant devotion. What we see here is extravagant devotion. This woman learns that Jesus is at this Pharisee's house. And the text tells us that she was a sinner. She was a known sinner. And so she comes, finds Jesus, and goes to worship him. What's really interesting in studying this, J.C. Ryle makes a very interesting observation by stating that the parallel passage to Luke 7 is actually Matthew 11. And so if you look at Luke 7, and we see just right above our passage, there's this whole dialogue about John the Baptist, right? Well, the same exact dialogue is happening in Matthew chapter 11. And in Matthew 11, J.C. Ryle believes that this woman was present, this, this woman who was once a notorious sinner, had heard Jesus' call when he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so her being in the crowd, hearing this, being a sinner, never having rest, being helpless and hopeless. The whole entire town knows that she's a sinner. She's an outcast. She's been canceled by society. And she hears Jesus saying, come to me. And in that moment, in the hearing of the precious promise of the gospel, this guilt-ridden woman receives Christ by faith. And now, then we get to our text, She learns where Jesus is, reclining, and she goes to worship him. And this was an absolute shock to the people there. Luke says, behold, this woman who is a sinner shows up. She shouldn't be there, but she shows up. She's called a sinner three different times in this narrative section here. See, though she was saved by grace, her old life followed her. Everyone around at the time knew that she was a sinner. Her life of promiscuity, at least church history, would maybe lean towards the fact that she was a prostitute, living for the pleasures of this world, living for men, living for affirmation. Wherever she could get it, she would find it. Whatever it was that she was dabbling in, whatever her lifestyle was, she was marked by it. People knew that woman is a disgusting sinner. But here she is now in a Pharisee's house. And look what she's doing. She's standing behind him. She comes to Jesus, sees them talking, and then she beholds her Savior. She looks at him. And then she begins to weep. Not out of sorrow, but out of gratitude. For the lover of her soul is right there. When everyone else rejected her, there was one that said, come to me. 
And there she is. She's weeping out of thanksgiving, out of joy. This is my Savior. (laughs) This devotion, this worship, right in the middle of their discussion. She doesn't care what people think. She begins to weep. This prostitute, now a daughter of the king, is crying tears of thanksgiving. For she was once lost, but now she is found, was blind and now can see. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound to save a wretch like me. I'm sure if that tune was written back then, she probably would have been thinking that. How can it be that God in Christ would save a wretch like me? And not only that, so she's standing there. You get the picture, she's standing, looking at Jesus, and she's weeping. And her tears are coming out so much that they begin to drop on her feet, on his feet. And so then in humility, as a servant, she stoops down and she undoes her hair. And she begins to wipe the dirty, disgusting feet of Jesus. Because they wore sandals. It was the grossest part of a human being. And she is taking the role of his servant. And she is washing his feet. And then she cracks open the alabaster flask. Probably the most expensive thing that she owned. Probably the thing that she earned through all of her promiscuity. Probably through all of her sin and all of her dalliances. She earned this. And now what used to be used for sin is now being used to worship Jesus. As she beholds her Savior. It reminds me of the time when I was in the Philippines. And I had a chance. It was so powerful to preach in this church, this Baptist church. And right before I go up to preach, the pastor tells me that the house that we're standing in used to be used for sex trafficking. But they bought it and now it's a church. So what used to hold, what used to be a place of sin and wickedness and depravity is now a place where the praises of Jesus are being sung and the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached. And this is exactly what we see in the text. That's the radical nature of the gospel. That's the scandal of grace. That each and every one of us who are Christians, our lives were once for, lived for ourselves. Once dead and now alive. What used to be used for our own glory is now being used for His. This is the extravagant devotion, the extravagant love of a foreign or of a forgiven sinner. This is the pouring out of her heart, love for her king. And thus we learn something here, a little application, is that a disciple of Jesus is a lover of Jesus. There is. The product of our salvation is a love for him and his law. And so she's pouring out her heart to the king. Jesus isn't after our behavior. He doesn't care necessarily if you go through the motions and and you show up to church and you just go through all these routines. He doesn't just want your outward behavior. He wants your heart. He cares about your affections. So in light of your forgiveness, believer, in light of what Christ has done, Fall into the arms of his love. Bow at, the feet, at his feet and worship. And weep for joy. For you are forgiven. It is finished. And so here in the text we see the extravagant devotion of this sinner. But then we come to the Pharisee. 
And the Holy Spirit gives us a window into this religious man's heart. And what do we find? Look at verse 39. So Simon is there and he's watching this woman and he's becoming to get annoyed. Look at verse 39. It says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. So he's not saying this out loud. He's saying this in his mind. And so the Holy Spirit gives us this little window to show us what he is thinking. And what do we see? We see point number two, the pride of self-righteousness. Just utter contempt for Jesus and this woman who is worshiping him. So number two, the pride of self-righteousness. Simon is disgusted. And all of his skepticism about Jesus is confirmed. If this man were a prophet, he would surely know what sort of woman is touching him, right? For she is a sinner. If Jesus was truly the Son of God, he would not go near this sinner. Because in that time, right, they lived in a society of clean and unclean. This woman was unclean. In his mind, the Messiah came to save the righteous, not the unrighteous. And so in the text, we have two different responses to Jesus and two different, totally different attitudes about sin and grace, as one commentator says. He says, there were many contrasts between these two people. One had a high social, social position, that is the Pharisee, and the other an outcast. One was a host, The other was not even an invited guest. One was angry and one was overcome with joy. One was still evaluating Jesus while the other had decided to trust him with her entire life. But the fundamental contrast was this. Only one of them believed that God had grace for sinners. That God had grace for sinners. See, Simon had no room in, it, uh, room in his heart for grace. His pride and self-righteousness kept his heart frozen and hard towards the Savior. Whereas the woman had a devotion which stemmed from the heat of the gospel of free grace. John Calvin says that the man's main problem, the Pharisee's main problem, is that he did not believe that the Messiah came to save sinners but rather those who were already deemed worthy. In other words, the Messiah comes to gather the righteous and not the unrighteous. Those that are are pure, that have upheld the law. The Pharisees, it wasn't the law that they upheld, it was their own man-made laws. Because no one can obey the law perfectly. And so this leads to the last point, which is this. We have to ask the question, What marks the difference between this woman and the Pharisee? What marks the the difference between the two? How come one has so much devotion and one so little? And so let's finish the narrative here. Look at verse 40. So Simon says, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is that is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. (laughs) 
And he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which one of them will love him more? What do you think? If you have a debt of $1 million that you owe the IRS, the IRS spells theirs, all right? It's theirs, it's their money. $1 million. You owe $1 million, and what's your name? Timothy. Timothy. All of you owe $1 million, and Timothy owes $100. And the government says, you know what, I'm going to forgive them both. Which of you, which, is Timothy going to be more happy than all of you? No. No, probably, I mean, you'll probably still be happy because 100 you probably don't even have 100 bucks. That's a lot of money. You have 400 Wow. Well, with inflation, it's going down, so it's not really worth 400 anymore. But it's okay. It's okay. It's a good time to invest, though, because the stock, okay. Let's go back. Gather up. Here we go. When they could not pay, he canceled them both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Verse 43, follow along. Simon answered, the one I suppose, such a smug move there, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. He knows that he's been trapped here. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And I love this. Then Jesus, turning to the woman, he said to Simon. So he's looking at the woman now, the friend of sinners, While he is defending her, he says this. Do you see this woman, Simon? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So what marks the difference between them? The first is that the woman's sin had been canceled while Simon's had not. She had received free forgiveness. Notice in the parable, it says when they could not pay. There's no way that they could pay. There's no amount of good works that they could have done. There's no family member that could say, here's the debt. There's no one to help them. Your parents can't help you when you stand before the Lord and you have a debt to pay, a spiritual debt. There's nothing that they could provide. But the, but the money lender just cancels the debt. He cancels it. He forgives. He bears the cost, right? That's what forgiveness is. When you forgive someone, when you're forgiven, God or Jesus Christ, both are God, God, Jesus Christ bears the cost for you so that you can go scot-free. Though she had been canceled by society, her sins and her debt were erased by Jesus. She had been forgiven. That's the difference. Why is it that she has so much more devotion? 
and Simon have so little? It's because she had received the free grace of the gospel. She had been forgiven. One believed that they were justified by their works, that is Simon, the other by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. How, we have to ask the question, how were her sins erased? Because Jesus is still alive. He hasn't died yet. And so, when Jesus says, you are forgiven, it really is a death sentence to him. On what basis is her sins forgiven? Look at Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's how. By canceling the record. How so? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers, the authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Jesus cancels the record of our sin on the basis of his life and death for us. But how is it that this canceling of the debt can actually become ours? Ours specifically. How were all of her sins forgiven? Let's continue in Luke chapter 7. It says, verse 49, Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so we have to ask the question, How are our sins forgiven? On what basis? Was it because of her love and devotion that then on the basis of her love and her worship that God forgives her sins? Or was it on the basis of the quality of her faith? On what grounds does God justify us? On what grounds does God forgive us? The Roman Catholics interpret this passage and they say in verse 47, Therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. And so the Roman Catholics say, oh yeah, you're saved by grace. This woman was, was saved by God's grace. She was forgiven on the grounds of her love and devotion. And so the way that you are justified, made right, declared righteous in God's eyes, according to the Roman Catholics, is by demonstration of your love, is by meriting that by your devotion. And so if we say, all right, she's forgiven on the basis of her love, then we're just like the Roman Catholics. So we know it's not that. So on what grounds? By faith in Christ. By faith in Christ. But you have to ask the question, Simon knew the word of God. And Jesus is standing right in front of him. So why is it that he is not forgiven? And why is she forgiven? What is true saving faith? I want to give you an acronym. CAT with a K. What is true saving faith? What does it entail? First, 
cat with a K, it begins with knowledge of the gospel. This woman had received the content of who Jesus is. Come to me and I will give you rest. And on the grounds of the promise, by on the basis of the promise, she comes and she hears the good news that Jesus can give her rest. But not only do you need to hear or know the content of the gospel, you need to agree with it. That's A, agree or assent and say, yes, that is true. But the difference between us and demons, because demons believe, they know the gospel, they agree with the gospel, but number T is the most, the letter T, not number T, letter T is the most important one, which is personal trust. Trust in the Savior. And so that's the key here. That's the difference. Simon had been putting his faith, his trust in his works, whereas the woman had put her trust in Christ. That's how our sins are forgiven. Through Jesus Christ. Well, what attaches us to Jesus Christ? Our faith. But it's not the strength of our faith that saves. It is Christ that saves. It's the object of our faith, right? Every one of you has faith in someone. Everyone in, a, everyone in this world has faith. But the difference between Christians and non-believers is that the object of their faith is Christ. The object of our faith is the mediator, the prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. And the good news is that it's not the quality of our faith that saves us. It's not whether or not we have strong faith that saves us or weak faith. What matters is are you clinging to Jesus? Are you resting in Jesus? Are you taking hold of Him in the gospel by faith, by trusting your life in Him? Jesus Christ and Christ alone. He is the one that saves. Not our faith, not our love, but Christ alone. But what attaches us to Christ is our faith. And when that happens, you know what happens when you cling to Jesus? All of your sin and shame is transferred to Christ. And all of His righteousness, all of His good works, all the blessings, the spiritual heavenly blessings... Ephesians 1.3, all of it becomes yours. All of his works, all of his righteousness are accredited to your account. Just like when we all had, let's just say, nothing in the bank. But then when COVID came around and the government, going back to that, gave us, they accredited to our account stimulus checks, right? We didn't deserve it. The only reason why we got that was by virtue of just being alive. In fact, everyone got it, right? And so they accredited to our accounts thousands of dollars. Well, in the same way, when you take hold of Christ, all of your guilt and shame is accredited to Christ, and he bears it on the cross, and all of his righteousness, all of his good works, all of, all of his law-keeping becomes ours. When I got married, I was, because I went to the master's university, in a lot of debt, Okay? I had a lot of debt, and so I, I, I was a poor man on my wedding day. All right? I barely had enough cash to pay for Caitlin's ring, which I got lucky because my grandma gave me a diamond, which is really awesome. So I paid about 600 bucks, but that's all I had, right? Timothy. 
Yeah, 600, not very much, right? But Caitlin, my wife, she had been working and she had been saving up all of her, her money. She had some, she had some serious cash, cash flow. And on the moment that we stood and we said our vows, and the moment that I looked at her and I said, till death do us part, and I said, I do. And the moment that she looked at me and said, I do, all of my debt became hers. <laughs> but Caitlin was so wealthy that all of her riches became mine, right? This great exchange. I was so thankful that Caitlin did not go to college. She did not have debt, right? She bore my debt and I had all the privileges of her riches. Her bank account became mine, right? And it's a beautiful picture, though, of the gospel. Because that is what happens. Follow along. All of Christ's wealth. becomes yours. Union with Christ. How could we ever doubt such a salvation? How could we ever fear that He would divorce us? That He would leave us and cast us out? That His grace is not enough to empower us and enable us to live for Him. When we realize the debt that we were in, when we go back and realize the spiritual leprosy that plagued us, and the spiritual paralysis that we were in, the, the debt that, that, that was greater than any debt, and that Christ would freely cover it. How could we not live for Him? So how can I increase my devotion for Christ? What does Jesus say? He who is forgiven much loves much. By remembering that your sins are forgiven, that your Savior Jesus lived and died for you, that He was your great substitute in the great exchange, that He was driven out of the presence of God so that you could be brought in. He was treated as an orphan on the, on the cross, forsaken by the Father. That way we could become sons and daughters. Friends, this woman was a notorious sinner who beheld Christ and her life was changed forever. No longer defined by her sin and shame. Now she's a daughter of the King. And it's true of us. And the more we bask in God's grace and mercy, the more our devotion for Christ will grow. And our devotion won't be perfect, but I want to end with this. And when we sin, and when we fail, and when we trip, and when we fall, we need assurance in this life, because we will sin. And there's this great verse in 1 John. It says this, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, you need to remember this. We have an advocate, a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And so when the devil or your flesh in the world accuse you like Simon accused this woman, remember as you walk the Christian life, you have a Savior who is in heaven defending you. 
I purchased him. He is clean. Well, do you see he messed up? She messed up. Did you see that again? She just broke your law as Satan accuses us. But, but Jesus says, no, no, no. Look, my blood was spilt for you, for, for them. My blood covers them. You need to remember you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And let that give you peace in this life and motivate you to live for him just like this woman who was a sinner. Father God, thank you so much for this passage. What a beautiful passage. A beautiful display of devotion, Lord. A beautiful display of worship. Thank you that you're a friend of sinners. We love you, Lord, so much. And I pray that you... that you would save even more students, that this is the last night, that they, they would not leave this place without getting right with you, without seeking you, without beholding you. I pray that they would not leave until they can know for certain that their sins have been forgiven, that all of your riches are theirs. We love you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, amen. Would you guys stand with us? We're going to end tonight a little bit differently. We're going to end with some worship. Does that sound good? I think that's appropriate. And um, and then after this, we're going to break up into small groups. And then after that, I'll let you know. I'll let you know when we finish up worship. All right, here we go.